Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in a real conversation, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the real dialogue oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. I'm producer Jason DeFilippo, and all of us here are glad you're here. Now, we all want to live life well and long, but life gets in the way of having a legendary life. We all get knocked off track, lose our moorings, and stop living life to its fullest. But what if there are secrets to a well-lived life? And if these secrets exist, what kind of person would you trust to have the lived experience, knowledge, and wisdom required to access life's secrets? Today, I kid you not, a life-affirming, real dialogue with the legendary Dr. Gladys McGarry. Dr. Gladys is a general practitioner, co-founder of the American Holistic Medical Association, and she's a category designer who is considered the mother of holistic medicine. Dr. Gladys is 102 years old. She began her medical practice at a time when women couldn't even have their own bank accounts. She's got a new number one bestseller out, and it's already in its second printing, called The Well-Lived Life. A 102-year-old doctor's six secrets to health and happiness at every age. This conversation takes some fascinating and unexpected turns. For example, you've probably heard of manifestation. Get ready to learn about feministation and how Dr. Gladys found her voice in her 90s. Also, listen for Dr. Gladys's list of L's and why everything in life changes when it includes love. This is a stunning conversation with a legendary life Yoda. Now, to thrive today, legendary marketing leaders and creators are using creator capital to design and dominate their categories. That's why you need a mighty network. On a mighty network, you can bring together your community, memberships, online courses, webinars, and events in one place under your brand on a platform you control. Plus, when you're ready, you can run your Mighty Network on your own branded mobile apps. So, if you want to dominate your category, mobilize your community, and drive new growth fast, go to MightyNetworks.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Dr. Gladys, it sure is wonderful to meet you. <laughs> it's good to meet you. And let me say right off the top, I'm so excited about your new book. I've actually been waiting for you to write this book for much of my adult life. Oh. <laughs> so, so thank you for writing the book that I wanted you to write for me. <laughs> All right. Now I have a, a, a thousand questions for you, but is there anywhere in particular you'd like to start this conversation? Well, yes. One of the things that I think is so amazing is that at this age of my life, I'm able to do things which I could never have imagined. You know, in my wildest dreams, the idea of talking to you where you are and me where I am and I can see you is is just... I mean, who'd have thunk it? When I was two years old and decided I was going to be a physician 
And uh, because my parents were physicians, all the rest, I had many reasons why. And my dolls need the care that they needed, all of that. It was uh, really important that I understood that. But now look at this. I'm a hundred years later and we're able to do what we're doing here. Uh, it just, it, life is so awesome. I couldn't agree more. And I'm, uh, I'm 55, so I'm roughly half your age. Yeah. And so I'm curious how this modern era of us sitting here doing a podcast, talking to each other over the internet, and all the other incredible things that we have today, all the new technology, all the incredible breakthroughs that are happening at increasing rates in the medical profession. How does all that look through your eyes? It's a, it's a, a conflicted thing. Um, I think that it's awesome. I think it's absolutely the, the technology and everything is, is, uh, it's hard for me to imagine that it is, but it is, you know. On the other hand, I have the, um, impression, it's not, that one of the reasons that these young men at 50, at 18 and 19 and so on, are killing each other, uh, are killing other ch other children and so on in the schools. The type of 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 uh, killing that's going on in, in in pockets of of things that are like that has to do with the technology not being integrated into the lives of the people who are doing that. In other words. I think that if these young men, because mostly who they are, understood anything about love and death, they would never do it. But the things that they are watching, one day they see a hero who is there, and the next day uh, he gets, and that day he gets killed, but the next day he's back. And the next day he's back. So death means nothing. It's a word. And maybe they've never realized, really experienced some, some living creature, a dog, a bird, a plant, another person, a parent who they really loved, who died. And if you have never had that any experience, of that kind of an, of a process, the death would mean nothing to you, whether it's your death or another another person's death. It's it's the kind of thing that if I had a, a person who had been born blind, and I tried to explain the color green to that person. I couldn't, he could never understand it. So I think there's a, a way that we could address this, if this is true, okay? I think that, why don't we, I have, well, let me tell you a story. Please do, I'd love to hear a story. Okay. And a friend who is a teacher, and she told me if years ago, the best year she ever had in her teaching career was the year that she had a dog in the room. And so we've been talking about that. If we had guardian dogs, 
in the classroom, instead of arming the teachers or arming other people with guns, I think we might have a solution to this. Because if those children, and they still are children in my mind, were in a class where they had a dog that they could relate to, dogs understand. A dog would understand that, that this is not, uh, you know, this child doesn't like dogs, so the dog wouldn't come near that person. That dog would, until the child reached for the dog, it would never come near. But if the dog had a, <clears throat> if there was a child in the room who was having trouble at home or didn't know about love, that dog would be there for that person. In other words, we would offer the child an experience of real love. And they don't even need to experience that. I mean, they don't need to understand that at a level of what's going on. They would get it in their hearts. And when they get it in their hearts, they wouldn't do that kind of thing. They wouldn't even think about killing another child, let alone themselves. Hmm. It's so interesting, Dr. Gladys, that, that we're starting here because... Um, a, I live my life surrounded by animals. We have nine hens and three cats. And, and of the three cats, one of them identifies as a dog. Um, <laughs> yeah. The other thing, as you're speaking, uh, and so just to finish that, the, the amount of joy they bring to our lives and our friends and family's lives is incalculable. And I'm reminded as you're talking, I used to do some work with the uh, World Wildlife um, uh, Fund, the WWF. And I remember years ago, their CEO sharing a story about when they do these big fundraiser events. And he said, when a scientist gets up and starts giving a presentation about something going on, people pay attention. And then he said, when a celebrity walks in the room, like a, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio and some big celebrities have supported the WWF for a year, he said, Everybody stops and all eyes are on the celebrity. And then he said, and when an animal comes in the room, everybody forgets there's a scientist and a celebrity and they focus on the animal. Right. Right. Well, you know, it's, I think, we, and, and the animal is alive and, and it's the epitome of love. And if we can, focus our life purpose on life and love oh man life life gets so good now a lot of your book is about this i i adore this book that you wrote i really really adore this book and i'm so incredibly glad that you wrote it so i don't these themes are everywhere in the book the third secret love is the most powerful medicine it is it is. Native Americans have always known that. I mean, they, their whole philosophy is built around that. My parents knew that. My parents were both uh, osteopathic physicians who went to India as missionaries. And we grew up in the jungles of North India. And they didn't have a lot of equipment. They didn't even have phones. They didn't have, there was no way of communicating with them outside world except the telegraph 
And uh, in fact, I have a lovely story. My oldest brother was, well, we had our life, our, we were living in the high Himalayas where we went to school. So our house was 7,005 feet, 100 feet above the uh, school. And my oldest brother went, when he had come back to India, fell in love with a nurse who was getting her training at the school. So that it, that it was a thousand feet drop and um, seven, you know, anyway, there was no way of communicating. There was no way of them getting any kind of a message to each other. So she was down there and he was up there and they were trying to get what we did have was dogs. And my dad had trained our dogs, all amazing. They were hunting dogs and all of that. They were great. But my brother wrote a let, would write a note to Ada, his fiance. Well, she was her friend's friend at that point, and tuck it into the dog's collar and say, "Laddie, take to Ada." And the dog would run down the hill, run down the hill, and the nurses down there would say, "Ada, your mailman's here." So she'd come and get her message <laughs> and write a report, and she'd say, Laddie, take to John, and he'd run up the hill. You know, so when we can envelop our environment in such a way that it is the way in which we really can communicate with each other. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, Taking this kind of thing and being able to communicate with you is using the environment in a way that is usable and loving. I mean, it, this is very nice. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And you, a lot of people want to talk about some of the negatives of um, communicating and collaborating like this in the digital world. And people seem to forget. I mean, you're in Arizona right now. Is that correct? Right. And I'm in California. And would it be wonderful for us to be physically in the same room? Absolutely. And would I love to share a coffee or a tea or a whiskey or a tequila or anything else you would like to share with me? I, I would. And if we had to wait for you or I to get on a plane to come see the other and set it all up and do this and do that, it would be a lot more difficult. And maybe it would happen and maybe it wouldn't. But today you're sitting at, is this your home you're in? Yes. And yes. I'm at my home and we're doing a, a broadcast quality, essentially a radio conversation on the internet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the key is use my mother called make do, you know, you make do with what you got and there's nothing wrong with the technology. It's our use of it. It's like um, in medicine, there's no nothing wrong with the, the way allopathic medicine is practiced. It's it's how we use what it is. It is like orthopedic surgery is amazing, and you know when you need to have orthopedic surgery, you better get orthopedic surgery and not just use the. Uh, an herb or think it's you make do 
And uh, in fact, um, I, I'm horrified by some of the stuff that I may do with. When I was in medical school, was just as the war started. And so, what, uh, what year was that, Doctor Gladys? 1941. The war. Uh, we, I started medical school, Women's Medical College in Philadelphia, um, in September, and the war started in December. And during that time, and for years, and still to this point, really, not that forcibly, when women were in labor, the purpose of the physician was to take away all pain from the patient, from the mother. So we were given, my first two children were born this way, given what was called twilight sleep. And the, the mother was completely anesthetized. She was totally useless as far as pushing the baby out. So we were trained to use forceps. And I was real good at that. I could use a, a, a forceps and deliver an after coming head, you know? The, you learn how to do these things. You learn the techniques. And that's what you do. But... When I, when I think about it, and for a while uh, after I began thinking about it, I was horrified by what I, but I now understand that I had to do what I learned. And so you learn what you learn, and you teach what you teach, and it's the same thing. But then, as you begin to understand some things, you need to understand that that was then, and this is now. So to com to to uh, complain about what I did then is stupid, really. I mean, I did it; it was the best I did. Baby got burned, and all of that. But when I look back at what we really did, we, in essence, removed the power of women to birth babies. To this day, we don't know. We don't give that power. We talk about the being in labor and having to be delivered. We still talk about it. I still talk, have to watch my language so that I don't say that I delivered such, you know, it's that consciousness of the fact that a woman can't birth her own baby. And that whole concept need, I think, really needs to be reclaimed. The whole process of pregnancy is an amazing process. The, the mother has done the whole job of what I'm calling feminifestation throughout the pregnancy. She and that baby are one. Uh, that baby eats what she eats and, uh, you know, does the things what she, th it's, it's one unit, but the baby can't really manifest until it takes its first breath. So the process of feminifestation and manifestation is something that I got, began to understand when I was in the middle, in my middle nineties from a dream. I had a, I woke up my, one morning, it was a huge crash. 
and I woke up and I was in the dream and I'm not in the dream in, I mean, in both places. And it, what, where I was in the dream was in a valley in the high Himalayas. And on the one side, on the right hand side, there was a young woman who was just splayed out on the ground, barely breathing. And on the left-hand side, there was a huge man in armor doing in exactly the same position. And the awareness came to me that these two energies... Thursday, June 22nd. Uh, I have a box, watch that talks to me. <laughs> Is that uh, an Apple watch, Dr. Gladys? Yeah, it said I fell. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you, you look like you're doing great to me. <laughs> It, so the the what the awareness that I got was that the right hand was the masculine side, and that's where the woman was. The left side was the feminine, and that's where the man was. And for eons of time, we had been pushing each other and and trying to get the other one to do or to become the other or whatever. You know, we were just, we had this conflict going on. It was time that we, instead of knocking, beating each other like we could hold hands and run our fingers together. But when I really woke up, I realized that the woman was on the right hand side. That's the masculine side. The man was on the left hand side. That was the man of um, feminine side. And so I had this friend who was a uh, wonderful psychic in Virginia Beach, and I, I called her because I wanted to talk this dream. So I, 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 the power of this dream was what something I had to really uh, investigate. And she says, well, I've just been thinking about a new word. She says, the word feminifestation. She says, you, you, we need to really begin to look at what, we are talking about manifesting and feminifesting. And they're, they're two really important words. And, and as we talked about it, manifesting is like Jacob's ladder. You, you take, a, you get a degree, you practice, buy a house, you get, you need to manifest something. That's manifestation. And that is, a masculine thing, it's what you're, you guys are perfect at, you know how to do. But the feminifestation stuff is like a spiral. I can be on the seventh or level and look down and know what's going on at the second level. I mean, that kind of connection makes really good sense to us. So even like with a pregnancy, the we manifest after, yeah, we feminifest during the whole pregnancy because that's one unit. We're, we're, we're one. But the, it, it can't be active until it manifests. The feminifestation has to complete its work so that the manifestation can happen. It's that process that we've kind of uh, really not understood 
And I think it's time that <laughs> we take a better look at it and see what that we do our job right. And then we can just accept that the manifestation is being doing, being done in the proper way. I don't mean proper way in the ex, the way that could, at that time can be accepted. Yes. Proper or not proper. Fascinating. I've heard you say, and uh, I've, and you'll have to excuse me. I've been consuming your TED talks, reading your book, listening to you on podcasts. So I'm not sure if I read it or heard it or something, but I, I definitely know you said or wrote about how you felt like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm curious how you think of it, that there was a big breakthrough for you in your nineties that maybe you felt like you became more of yourself or you've talked about sort of having some big, big steps come forward for yourself and your uh, life in your nineties. Finding my voice. Yes. Thank you. Finding your voice. So, so would you mind sort of telling me how you found your voice in your nineties? Yeah. Um, I pay a lot of attention and have for years paid attention to my dreams. They've been very helpful for me. And um, throughout my life, uh, I had really never trusted my voice. I, I didn't understand this because I had written books. They were medical books, and I, I, uh, and I had um, spoken from the podium and all of that, but I was constantly deflecting what I said to somebody else. My husband was a physician and he loved to write. I was no good at writing. So when I'd write a book and I'd have him edit it and then, so it would be, um, my, what I would say, but, uh, I, in my mind, I had to, have it validated by somebody else. Or uh, uh, one time, I I had done a lecture in <laughs> in Denver. I remember, and afterwards, I was in the ladies' room, and somebody thanked me for whatever it was that I had said. And I tried to deflect that, and my tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth, and it would not. I couldn't say anything. It was the <laughs> weirdest thing. I'm going, you know, I, I just had to excuse myself because I, I, but I didn't understand that at that time. I couldn't understand that my body was trying to tell me just to say thank you and walk yes. off. You know, it was, but it was that honestly hard for me to do that. But when I um, was in my, uh, 90s, you know, and I, the dream that I had was that I saw myself as nine-year-old Gladys in the jungles of North India, and um, I was coming out of our tent, and I'm pulling the, the tent flap back and looking out so that my, my Younger, bro <clears throat> younger brother that wasn't there, he would tattle on me and I would do I trouble because what I knew I was going to do was uh, against the family rules. It was a sa Sunday morning and in our family we were not allowed to sing anything but hymns and pudgeons. 
in on Sunday mornings. But I thought that was a, in, my, in my wisdom as a nine-year-old. I thought that was a stupid thing, and so I was going to sing. But I so nobody was around. So I climbed as fast as I could to the top of the mango tree. And I'm up there and I'm sitting there. I'm singing that caterpillar song or any other song that I was singing. I'm having a great time. But every so often I look over my right shoulder and Jesus is up in the tree with me. And he's laughing. He's just, he's just really laughing. And I look at Jesus and I say, um, Jesus loves the little children, right? And he laughs and he says, yes, 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 yes. So I go back to my singing, but then I get to doubting it a little bit. So I look back over my shoulder and I say, I'm still a little children, right? And he says, yes. So then I, then I woke up, but I woke up singing and laughing. And I realized at that point, your voice is important. Now stop. Every time you deflect it, you're, denying what you're saying in essence so that that actually is what uh allowed me to begin thinking about the book that that i finally wrote because all of the other books had a medical bent to them i mean the last book was living medicine beyond holistic medicine yeah and 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 so the books that i had written before were books that are still around and they're good books and so on, but they didn't have the essence of my uh, soul essence that I, what I call the physician within each one of us. Yes. Um, that could really, really tell a story that, that we as human beings, I think, are really reaching for. I think we're reaching for our true humanity. I think that E.T., when he was reaching for home, was reaching for our true humanity. It's that inner aspect of the divine that is life and love. And uh, so when, you know, when we, when the earth was created and we were, uh, uh, and the good Lord gave us dominion over the earth and, and you know, and, and said, I've created all this. Now here, we people in our areas thought he was saying dominance. And that wasn't what it is. Dominion says you take care of people. You take care of the earth. Dominance says, here we go, people. This is yours. You can dominate it any way you want to. And so we got ourselves all mixed up. And so we're in now, I think, it's, uh, with all the technology and everything that's coming out, we really are reaching for our true humanity that has to do with life and love. I mean, it's pretty simple. We seem to get confused a, a lot. Oh, <laughs> Continue. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's a lot, uh, Dr. Gladys, in your book about love. Yeah. And I have had what can only be described 
as loving care from my doctor. I had the same doctor for 25 years. She's retired now. I have a new doc who's a DO, actually, and she's incredible. Yeah. Uh, but the doctor I had for, for 25 years or so, she loved us through a lot of challenging times. And it's, it's an extraordinary experience when you know that your doctor cares that much about you. Uh-huh. And so yeah. with that said, Dr. Gladys, you know, you're, you're the mother of holistic medicine. You've created a whole new category of medicine that wasn't thought of the way it is now thought of, certainly here in the United States and in much of the Western world. And so maybe tell me about what, what your definition of holistic medicine is. Well, I think what I saw my parents practicing in the jungles of northern India was holistic medicine because they didn't have any tools. You know, they had a trunk that they they had their stuff in and a tent. But what what they were really working with was, was what the patients had that they could work with. And so and and they really connected with that aspect of the patient. So that that's what I thought medicine was all, all about. That my uh, you know, that's why I got to send to the psychiatrist twice while I was in medical school because I couldn't get, the, I, I kept trying to uh, understand what was missing. There, I knew that something, would, and so when we got into the actual practice of medicine and I realized that um, we knew a lot about our, the body and we knew a lot about them. We were beginning to learn about the mind. So this is during the war. And, and then and then as I got into practice, yeah, we had that pretty well done. But where was the actual depth of feeling that I had towards my patients? And, uh, and actually my husband, husband did too, that we knew that we love these people, and uh, uh, it was something that I I knew that was. But but we moved to Phoenix and uh, in 1955, and and uh, got interested in some other aspects of healing because diet and nutrition were became you know different things were showing up that were important in the process of healing. So uh, there, we actually started a newsletter called Pathways to Health. And uh, it, it kind of went around the world, pretty much people who were doctors were subscribing to it and we were sending it out. And one time, um, this was in the early 70s, uh, well, I meant late 70s. We got a letter from a mailman in, in, uh, Maine who said that he had gotten one of the pathways to hell that which we were talking about using a castor oil pack on the neck, uh, for a sore throat. So he had a sore throat. So he put a castor oil pack on his neck, but he'd been out of work for three months 
because of a, so, a bad ankle. And lo and behold, the castor oil pack on his neck healed his ankle. He had been going to physicians for three months and had, and he said, if you understand, can tell me why that happened, I, I'd really like to know. Well, we looked at each other, Bill and I, and we said, we don't have a clue. So the next newsletter that went out, um, Bill wrote the story up and we got an answer from a doctor in Italy who said, if you guys knew anything about acupuncture, you would understand that the meridian that started up in the face came all the way down the neck and on into the ankle. And we looked at each other and we said, what's this acupuncture stuff? <laughs> The nice thing was that Nixon had just gone to China and came back talking about having seen an appendectomy with acupuncture. So we were able to create a symposium in, uh, in 78 on acupuncture and body injuries in Stanford. And there were 310 doctors who came to that symposium. So, you know, it was that kind of an evolving process that uh, was happening during those those years. There was a, it was amazing. There was, uh, yeah. Thank you for that. Now, there's many, 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 many uh, words and phrases that have been used to describe you, Dr. Gladys. <laughs> and certainly pioneer is one we hear a lot. And on the back of your book cover is the most stunning fact, at least to me, and I guess that's why it's there. And it reads, Dr. Gladys McGeary began her medical practice at a time when women couldn't even have their own bank accounts. Yeah. So I, I try to put myself in your shoes and the amount of barriers you have broken and the amount of new ground that you have taken and the amount of new things that you have helped create and bring into the world are really mind-boggling for certainly for me and I think for a lot of people. And so I'm curious, where does this drive to be different? Where is this drive to challenge the status quo in the medical world as a woman at that time to challenge some of the very fundamental things about the way the Western world thinks about medicine? And to be the, the godmother of holistic medicine. So tell me about where this drive to um, make this kind of radical change comes from. Well, it comes from the fact that uh, when I was, when I started school, my life turned upside down because I was so dyslexic that I couldn't read or write. And I had repeat first grade. So I was a class dummy and the teacher told everybody I was a class dummy and the kids said I wasn't. And so that's who I was for two years, except that I wasn't at home. At home, it was a totally different story. But, but when I was facing the world, <laughs> I was a dumb one until um, I started third grade and the teacher there saw something in me that the other ones had not seen. And she 
appointed me class governor. And so I was the one who had the opportunity to take, because I could talk and I could organize stuff. I could do things. And, and, uh, so I was the one who had the opportunity to, to, to talk and tell the, the a whole audience of the school of what our class was doing. And at this one point, my mother was an amazing person, but at this one point, uh, we had a, a play that, uh, we, our class, the third grade had to, for do for the whole auditorium, whole school. And my job was, it was a frog that jumped over the pool. And my job was to jump over the pond because I was the biggest one in the class because I did, you know, I had a year older and all that kind of stuff. And my mother made me a, a, a frog suit that she dyed green and and so I came out on onto the stage really in great confidence. I knew I had this licked, and I stepped onto the stage. And I, when I looked at the audience, my two older brothers were in the front row of the audience, and I just got off my step enough that instead of jumping over the pond, I jumped into it. And so I'm standing in this pond. The green is fading off of my suit. I did not fall. I'm standing there crying and, and, and I couldn't move. And the audience is in stitches. I mean, they're just laughing. This is just hysterical. And finally the teacher comes and leads me off of the stage. So I get home and we're at home and we're having dinner. And my brothers are telling the family all about how wonderful this was, how funny it was and all. And I'm giving them the death stare and it didn't work and <laughs> all of that until my mother finally says, all right, boys, now you've had your fun. What can we as a family do to help Gladdy if this ever happens to her again? So that instead of having people laugh at her, they would laugh with her. And that statement and that insight from the family actually helped me through, I can't tell you how many times, because with this dyslexia stuff, you're a little bit off balance a lot of times too. And uh, so I, I've stripped and fallen on the stage and that kind of stuff, but I've always had something that I could say that was funny enough that I'd have the audience in my hand before I ever said a word, other, another word. So it's, it's that use, it's the make do that my mother talked about. You make do with what you've got. And it was a, an amazing event in my life to help me understand what it was that I could really do, which, uh, you know, could have been totally disastrous throughout my whole, whole life. Hmm. Thank you for that story. I'm curious as somebody who is also today, the, the word we use uh, for people like you and me is neurodiverse or neurodifferent. And I have uh, several of them, dyslexia, dyscalculia, ADHD, blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah. I'm curious, Dr. Gladys, how much do you think your different brain has contributed to the pioneering work that you've done your whole life? Well, I think it's been pivotal, but I think accompanying it has been the family that I was raised with. To have a family, mother and dad, they were both osteopathic physicians who were so committed to the uh, field of medicine that they, their idea of working with medicine was that, that love was the healing aspect and that uh, life and love were, had to be, you know, it was, it was the essence of what I needed to know in order to really understand what it was that I was working towards. Enough so that, you know, my eldest son, the retired orthopedic surgeon, when he did finish his training, he came through Phoenix, and he said, Mom, you know, I'm going into the, the world and I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. He was on his way down to Del Rio, Texas to start his practice. And uh, he said, I don't know if I could handle that. And I said, well, Carl, if, you know, you had this amazing training in orthopedics, it's huge. The world needs it. You, you, that's, that's your job. And if you do that to the best of your ability and then pay attention to the physician within your patient, who really does the healing so that you are then in the process of working with a colleague who can actually do the healing while you're doing the uh, work of however, whatever it is that you need to do. I knew nothing about feminifestation or manifestation, but that's basically what we were talking about at that point. And and so he had an amazing practice. It did wonderful work, and it's uh, and is happily retired, continuing to do wonderful work, having a great time in Washington State. And this all comes from the insight that the patient's the doctor, or at least the co-doctor, mm -hmm. and that maybe the doctor's job is to help the patient access their own inner healing. Am I, am I understanding this the way you'd like me to? Yes. Yes. It's so interesting that you say this, Dr. Gladys. My um, father-in-law is in his early 90s. And when he was in his mid-80s, he uh, needed a new heart valve. He had had one put in much uh, earlier in life. And he outlived its usefulness, as we were, as the uh, cardiac surgeon explained. Uh, and he's very, very healthy, active, fit, uh, eats well, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, of course, we were all very nervous because we love him very much. And a person at that age having surgery is a uh, heart surgery is a very, uh, you know, focusing thing, if I could put it that way. Yeah. And um, the heart surgeon looked him straight in the eye with the family around his bed shortly before the surgery. And he said, I'm going to get you through this surgery. And after that, it's up to you. Yeah. Yep, he got it. Yeah, and we looked at the doctor straight in the eye and we said, well, if you get him through the surgery, 
we'll we'll take it, we'll take it from there. <laughs> right, 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 right. Now, yeah. there's so much incredible insight in in this book. Um, one in particular that spoke to me was chapter eight, moving through pain. And the thing that has occurred to me is uh, I have lived longer on this planet. Um, Dr. Gladys is uh, nobody gets through life without experiencing some absolutely soul crushing pain. At a minimum, we're all going to lose our parents. We're going to lose some people that we love. Uh, Unfortunately, today, of course, we're experiencing war in Europe again. Uh, we've just come through this pandemic and, and, and everything that comes after that and so forth and so on. We all end up having to face some pretty extraordinary pain. And some people, as they get older, you know, the phrase grumpy old man, grumpy old woman exists for a reason. And maybe part of what makes people grumpy over time is they've experienced more and more pain over time. I don't know. Maybe you'll tell me. And so my question for you about this is why do you think, why did you dedicate an entire chapter to quote unquote moving through pain? Because j- just what you said, we've all experienced pain. You know, it's part of life, it's there. But I believe that everything that happens to us or everything that we experience. Is a teacher. There's something there that we need to learn. And the people that have pain, take for instance Roosevelt. He had post polio syndrome and he became president. If we can use that pain as a teacher, it's amazing. I have a friend and I wrote about her who is an artist. And when she, and she just discovered this on her own, she calls it finding the ting in painting. In other words, when she was, and she's had pain, a lot of pain all, all of her life. When the pain starts in and gets to the point where she thinks she just can't handle it anymore, she grabs her painting stuff. And she starts painting. She paints anything that's nearby. She paints her shoes and her purses and the inside and the wall and anything that is available. She paints it until what she calls the ting happens and she could get on with her life. Now it's finding that place of within our own being that we can understand what it is and and understand how we can deal with that. I've had other patients that have found other ways of expressing it, but I, I love that. When she got the tea, and, and she's now in, uh, in Mexico, and she has a whole community that's at part. I mean, and she's in pain all the time. I had another patient that just died at, at the age of uh, 79, and she, for all of her life, from the time she was 18 months old, lived with one quarter of one kidney. That's not possible. And all of us who were her physicians and helped her 
through the years, have no idea how she did that. But she knew that when she was in a position of pain or of, of just playing something that wasn't going right, she would figure out what it was that she could do that would get her to the next point. And that's what we, we physicians were working with her. That's what we could do is to help her to get to the point where she could go on with what it is that she was with her life, you know. She birthed one baby and uh, he was a stillborn, unfortunately, but she adopted another one and raised that child who is a wonderful art teacher in the community college here. You know, it's that kind of, when you actually accept the fact that within your own being is the essence of what the healing is all about. And then you can work with that and figure out how you, how you as a person can do that. It's what my mother called make do. You know, you, you use, now who would have thought of painting? You know, she would, she's a dad, she's a painter. I had one, one OB patient who danced the baby out. Now that's, <laughs> uh, you know, she was a dancer. It's, it's the kind of thing that when you have something that makes your heart sing and that's why you're doing it, then when you're in pain uh, or whatever, that's one of the lessons that you can learn from pain. Thank you for that. Now, Dr. Gladys, you, you open the book with secret number one, you're here for a reason. And I deeply believe that. I know that when I surrender to that reason, when I, when I uh, give my life to that reason, I'm a religious person as well, a Christian. I know my life works better when I surrender to the service that I think I'm here for. Yeah, And as corny as it might sound to some, there are times in my life where God taps me on the shoulder and goes Psst, over there and says, taste, what are you doing? Get focused again. I, I feel those things. I also talk to a lot of people, people, Dr. Gladys, who say they struggle with finding their purpose and, and they hear things like this and it actually is somewhat burdensome to them because they feel like maybe they haven't been able to. And so how do you want people to think about the reason they're here and, and getting in touch with that? Well, you know, when I was in medical school, the dean did send me to the psychiatrist at least twice. And because she thought I didn't understand what medicine was about and that I wasn't good enough for medicine, okay? So it's... Uh, when we begin to really look at what it is that we want to do with our life. If, if we pay attention to our dreams, if we pay attention to what it is that makes us really want to be alive, it's, it's the direction we want to take. Do we want to keep looking back over our shoulder and 
saying, well, that's a terrible spot, or into a dark place uh, and not get out of it. It's a matter, it really and truly is a matter of choice because light is always there. Not a lot of light a lot of times. Not a, I mean, Sometimes it's just a glimmer of light, but it's always there. And we do have, we're not in this alone. I think that those of us, see, I kind of think I'm, I have a flashlight in my hand and I'm walking down my path and I can't take more than one step because it, the flashlight goes as fast as far as it'll go. After that, it's darkness. But I can be walking down this flight walk path and see a little glimmer of a light over in the, in the side and maybe lend a little bit of my light to that glimmer and make that light brighter for that person. And maybe that will be something that will give them something to start on their path. In other words, there, we're constantly being given opportunities to help each other. And we're constantly in a position of needing that help. You know, it's, it's a, uh, we are not in this world alone. We're here with each other. And, uh, my oldest daughter who died when she was 58 of breast cancer, but was this amazing, amazing person. When she was three, she was trying to tie her shoelace. And I went over to try and help her and she wagged her ponytail and stomped her foot and said to me, I'd rather do it my own self. And so I says, okay, okay. <laughs> so I backed off and uh, she's working at it, working at it. Finally, she stops and she puts her head back and she says, if you ever help me, help me now. <laughs> <laughs> there are times in life when we really need help from other yes. people. You know, we do as much as we can do. And then it's just, uh, we're, we're stuck. Yes. And we, uh, we can't, you know, we really need help. Yes. So, and, and, and in those times, or when those of us who do have the calling within our soul to help each other, we're looking for that time when we can reach out and help. Yes. That's what, that's why we write books. That's why we talk talks, why we do speeches. It's why we have friends. And, and so it's that whole community together we need each other. We really do. Desperately, don't we? Yeah. Now, um, I believe, let me just double check. I think it's the last secret. Yeah. Spend your energy wildly. Yes. So when I first, just in the table of contents, I always start books with the table of contents. I don't know if it's because I'm dyslexic or not, but I sort of, uh, I, and I often don't read books in order, particularly, of course, in nonfiction. And when my brain started to read that secret, I, I unconsciously read, spend your energy wisely. Yeah. And then I looked at it again because my eye caught it and said, no, I, 
Don't think that's what Dr. Gladys is saying. Spend your energy wildly. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Why, why, why that phrase? And because, see, first of all, when we had this, when we were working on a title and, uh, this title came up and I didn't like it at first because I thought it was saying, live my life wildly. Okay. And that's not what I was wanting to get, get out. And somebody said, well, it's not your life we're talking about. We're talking about the reader's life. So that what, what sends your life, uh, wildly is saying to the reader, don't be afraid to step out and, and reach higher than you think you could reach or dance. Um, high, I mean, dance yourself through a pre, a pre delivery. I mean, you know, that there are things that you, that are in life that seem out of reach for us, but they don't have to be out of reach because the world's around and you've got friends and you've got life and life goes on and, and you just have to keep looking for it. So if you're not looking for it, you'd never see it. If you're not looking for the light, you don't see it. You just see darkness. If you, if you're just, uh, feeling your pain and, and that's all. It's like if you have a cut on your arm and you're picking at the scab, it'll never heal. But if you can sort of do the things that you can do to, to let that heal, and then you'll come back years later and look at your arm and say, "Oh, I know who you are." You know, it's it's so all we have left is a memory. Yes, not a ongoing process of pain. Yes, yes, we have a we have a scar that we can wear as a badge of honor for having gone through something. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if I said to you, hey, I, I, I want to emulate your life. I want to live like Dr. Gladys. Other than, of course, many of the things we've spoken about already. What comes to your mind uh, in terms of what advice you might give me if I want to live to be a successful person late in life and be as vital and as uh, interested and is as as much of an educator, and of course you're still a doctor. And I mean, you seem to have an extraordinary life. And so, if I wanted to model my life on your life, what are some other things you might share with me? Well, you know, I have the five L's that I kind of put it in that context, and that might help to answer your question. The first. L is life. Life without love is just, it's, it doesn't have, it's like a seed in the pyramid, uh, there for 5,000 years do, doing nothing. But when life, love is attached to that, or it, the seed opens up and, and all the energy of the universe is right there, access to it. 
So it's life and love are integral. They, they have to work together. But the third L is laughter. Laughter without love is cruel. It's cold. It's, it's mean. But laughter with love is joy and happiness. So choose, you know, when you go through these L's, choose which way you want to work with them. Labor without love is drudgery. I have to go to work. There are too many diapers. I don't want to wash the windows. You know, all that kind of stuff that you drag you. I don't, I can't do it. It's too hard. But labor with love is bliss. It's doing what you do. It's a painter's painting. It's a singer's song. You know, it's, it's that that takes you to the next level of life and, and it gives it that kind of meaning. And the fifth one is, un, is, uh, listening. Listening without love is empty sound, the clanging gong. It just doesn't, it means nothing. But listening with love is understanding. <laughs> so as we begin to put our thoughts into context with that, those five, sometimes it helps us to get a direction or a purpose or see where we may uh, do something that will help to lead us to, uh, to where, where we want to keep going. Yes. Thank you so much. Now, Dr. Gladys, I do want to be respectful of your time. I could clearly talk to you for hours, um, and you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Um, really. I mean, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Is there anything else that you would like to touch on? Anything at yeah. all? I have a 10-year plan. <laughs> I want to hear all about it, if you'll tell all me. Right. It's about the Village for Living Medicine, and we have a a little brochure that will be just coming out now. The idea that there has to be some place on earth, and it can be any place on earth or multiple places on earth, where people come together as a group who understand that they want to live in, in harmony with each other, that they want to be friends with each other, and that... Uh, they can do things for each other to help, you know, it becomes a community of loving existence, which includes a birthing, a loving birth center, a research center, a aging into health center, and an educational center. You know, it, it evolves into a community where People are drawn because love draws people to it. Wow. And um, so this is a community that you're creating or you're involved with? I, my Foundation for Living Medicine, Yes, that's its, its purpose is ultimately to be able to really create a village for living medicine. I grew up in a village in 
North India, you know? Yes. (laughs) And it's interesting, you know, many of us, particularly in in North America, uh, I know it was true for part of my life. It is not true now. We do not experience living in a community. We go to work. Yeah. We go to the grocery store. We do this. We do that. We come home. Uh, and we don't know many, if any, of our neighbors. Maybe we don't really talk to them. We don't. Uh, today, where I live, is quite the opposite, Dr. Gladys. I know all my neighbors. When I go out to the grocery store, there's a high degree of likelihood I'm going to bump into somebody I know and have a nice chat. And, and it's a real community. And having lived in places where that didn't exist and living and having lived in places where that does exist, my personal experience, Dr. Gladys, is when you when you live in a community, when you've had that in your life, and then you don't, it's actually quite shocking. It is. And it's it is. sad for me to know that many people in our country in particular can go through much, if not all of their life, without really experiencing that sense of neighbors and community like that. Well, they don't know that it exists. You know, it's like, teach you a blind man about the color green you know it's uh it's it's if you've never experienced it you don't know it exists so you don't so you don't know to look for it you do now you know and uh yeah it's it's a matter of of, well and i'm not moving either for that reason (laughs) (laughs) yeah Anything else you'd like to touch on, Dr. Gladys? The process of choosing right, light, or darkness, mm-hmm. you know, and if we can put it into that context, it's, it's, uh, what's, is this choice? If we're making a major choice, say, is it, is this something that is really leading me where I want to go, where I can really express myself and, and be who I am? who I've now discovered within myself, a a person that I'd like to communicate with other people who like to communicate with people like me who like to, you know, that sort of thing. The the process of living and growing and continuing and not getting stuck is really important. Anything else, Dr. Gladys? No, I... Uh, GladysMcGarry.com. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure that um, uh, all of the links uh, to your website and any other links you like uh, to your book and all that will be included in our show notes for sure. No question Thank about that. You. And uh, we're going to tell everybody we know to go buy this uh, extraordinary <laughs> book, The Well-Lived Life, because um, if we were going to take lessons from anybody on how to live a well-lived life, we'd be wise to take them from you. Oh, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I can't thank you enough. Uh, your contributions to medicine, uh, to holistic medicine, of course, to um, just educating all of us about how there is a doctor inside us, how important love is. Um, I mean, Dr. It's Gladys, great, isn't it? <laughs> you are a beacon of legendary in the world. You really are. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, and please come back soon. All right. God bless you, Dr. Gladys. Bless you. That was the legendary Gladys McGarry. 
You can find out more about Gladys at GladysMcGarry.com. The book is The Well-Lived Life, A 102-Year-Old Doctor's Six Secrets to Health and Happiness at Every Age. Pick up your copy or 10 today. We'd like to thank you. Thank you for spending your time with us. And we'd also like to thank MightyNetworks.com. If you're a marketer or a creator who wants to build and monetize a native digital community, go to MightyNetworks.com. And The Innocence Project. Become a part of The Innocence Project's community of monthly supporters who give to free the innocent, prevent wrongful convictions, and create fair, compassionate, and equitable systems of justice for everyone. Learn more at innocenceproject.org. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. This oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and it contains content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. All oddcasts contain nuts, all rights disturbed. Please contact your doctor, holistic healer, lawyer, accountant, shaman, bud tender, and category designer before doing anything about anything you hear here today. Everything is the way it is because somebody changed the way it was. Teach category design. This podcast is produced and edited by Jason DeFilippo. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution and keep the website a pumping. Show notes by GM Simon. RJ and EX Bobus do our web development. Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack. Our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record on Squadcast.fm. Gordon Lightfoot was right. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Thanks, Candy Dandy. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together. Our deepest apologies go to Andrew Tate. Sorry, Andrew, we just ran out of time for you. Till next time, stay safe, stay legendary until we're together again. Follow your different.